From the great state of Ohio, Buckeye Firearms Association presents Keep and Bear Radio, fighting for Second Amendment rights, calling out media lies, and telling the gun grabbers to come and take it. Now, Keep and Bear Radio. Bells, bells, and more bells. Ohio is considering nine gun control bills and a dozen pro-gun bills, including constitutional carry and limiting the power of government in an emergency. Which ones will pass? Which ones will fade away? What's the status of all this legislation? That's what we're going to talk about on this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. I'm Dean Reek, Executive Director of Buckeye Firearms Association, and I'm joined by Rob Sexton, BFA Legislative Affairs Director. Hi, Rob. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dean. Glad to be with you again. I thought we should have you back on the podcast to discuss where we are with a lot of these bills. There's there's a lot going on. I mean, we've got on our website 12 bills that we support that are in various stages of progress. And then there are, I'm looking at my notes here, nine bills that we oppose. Yes. So uh, lots lots of uh, stuff going on down there. Just in general, how are things going at the state house? Because they're still dealing with all the the uh, pandemic stuff. Uh, there were a lot of other big issues they were dealing with recently. Are, are we back to business now? Well, yeah. You know, they're uh, they're back opened up after coming back from summer break. Uh, they're dealing with a lot of stuff. I think that's probably the biggest challenge we've got is just they're dealing with a lot. COVID restrictions bills, voting rights bills, voting security bills. There's a lot going on. So there's a lot of uh, clutter to fight through. But they're, you know, they're back in session. They're back in hearings. And this is the time when if you're going to get something done, you need to make it happen. So uh, let's just go over. Uh, let's do this in reverse order. And look at some of these bills that we oppose. These are the bad bills. These are the anti-gun, gun control bills. There's really not a whole lot to say here. Uh, there are nine bills total. Out of all nine bills, only one of them has even had a hearing. And uh, that was HB 262 to require firearms to be locked up. It's had one hearing, a proponent hearing, and that's it. None of these other bills have, have even had a single hearing. There's one bill to reinstate the duty to retreat, a bill to enact uh, risk protection orders, you know, basically red flag. There's one for universal background checks, uh, another one in the Senate for background checks. There's a bill to raise the firearm ownership age to 21, repealing statewide preemption, banning bump stocks, another red flag. None of them have gone anywhere. Do we know anything about any of these bills that makes us think that we're that they're going to move or anything's going to happen. No, I don't think so, Dean. You know, we're we're fortunate to have a pretty pro-gun legislature when it comes to gun control. So, you know, we don't always get what we want in terms of opening up fully realizing Ohio's constitutional right to keep and bear arms, but when it comes to the really nasty gun control stuff, we've got a pretty positive legislature, so I I really don't think any of these bills are a genuine threat. So let's go through the ones that we support. 
And there are a dozen separate bills here. Now, some of these have companion bills. So there'll be one in the House, one in the Senate. So it's not necessarily 12 different topics, but there are 12 separate bills that we have currently listed on our website that uh, we support. So the first couple is HB 12, which is to enforce constitutional rights, and HB 62, which is the uh, sanctuary bill. Now, the first one, HB 12, there have been zero hearings. Nothing has happened, no movement at all. The sanctuary bill, it has had three hearings, but the last one was in June. And are we seeing any movement on these at all? No, we we haven't seen any since June. I think House Bill 62 is the one that's getting most of the attention by the House. I think they're looking for something they can do. Let's remember the purpose of these bills you know, was the very real fear that Joe Biden as president and the Democratic Congress were going to come after us, come after our guns. And so you know, I think Representative Grindel, Representative Lojcik, they were looking for something we, that Ohio could do to protect our rights. Uh, it's a complicated issue because, you know, federal law trumps state law, but there are probably still some things that can be done by Ohio to, frankly, resist this kind of thing. And that's what I think Reps Grindel and Lojcik are trying to find the right combination that would actually really work. And so that's why it hasn't gone any farther since June. Yeah. So on the sanctuary bill, one one of the problems with some of these bills is that at the state level, you cannot literally preempt federal law. You can't have a state law that says federal law doesn't exist. You know, you can say you're not going to enforce it, which is our take on the best way to approach this. So we can say, okay, there's the federal law. We can't overrule it, but we're just not going to put resources into enforcing it on the state level. And that's uh, that's the direction that a bill like this would have to go for it to actually work. Yeah. And, and here's the thing, Dean. The idea originally was, you know, Ohio would say we're a Second Amendment sanctuary and we just don't recognize federal law. It sounds great. A lot of our people think it's great. In reality, there are other states that have done this, and uh, you know, uh, gun owners in those states have attempted to assert their state status as a Second Amendment sanctuary, and there's a couple guys actually sitting in prison over it. So this is not something that you just take lightly like it's a slogan flag. This is something that, you know, if Ohio's going to do this, we want to make sure that gun owners are protected and that it actually really works. And so What's being discussed a lot now is the idea that Ohio might not enforce anything that federal law puts in place with regard to guns. And I still think there's some complications to work out there, but at least that approach doesn't put uh, you know, a gun owner in legal jeopardy. Okay, so that's the first three bills on our list. And then that brings us, I'm sorry, that's the first two bills. And that brings us to the third bill on the list, HB 89 to repeal the duty to promptly inform. Now, that that's kind of um, something we've been working on for a while because right now there is the problem. The law says that you have to promptly inform an officer uh, when he or she stops you, but no one knows what promptly means. And there have been people who have been in trouble. In fact, we've had at least one tragic case uh, where someone was pulled over and, uh, you know, the, the situation got really bad because uh, the officer thought that the uh, driver did not promptly inform. But that's not defined anywhere. So 
you know, we definitely support this idea. And it's had three hearings, but the last one was in March. So, you know, then, then you know, they went on to break and then all they were dealing with all these other bills, uh, the budget, uh, the virus stuff. Is that going to go anywhere? Because that really is one thing that does need to be corrected in Ohio law. Well, there's no doubt it needs to be addressed. In a moment, I'm sure we're going to talk about our, our uh, work to pass a constitutional carry bill in Ohio. All of the various models that are being looked at for constitutional carry include a fix to the duty to inform. I think Representative Wiggum is a big supporter of moving constitutional carry. So at this point, House Bill 89 is sort of a placeholder in the event constitutional carry didn't get done. He would still want to advance House Bill 89 in its place. But of course, our hope, our goal is to not have to use House Bill 89, but instead address it you know, when we pass constitutional carry. That's going to solve a big problem. Um, I mean, I've been pulled over. I have a little speech rehearsed. But, you know, if you're if you don't have that, if you're not comfortable talking to police, if you're a little thrown when they pull you over, even if you just delay for 60 seconds, I mean, is that not promptly that you can get in trouble? So one way or another, that does need to be addressed. Now, now that brings us to HB 99. And this is something we've certainly been putting work into because there was a bad Supreme Court ruling that essentially removed security from schools all over Ohio. And this this bill, HB 99, would exempt armed school personnel from police training. So what happened was uh, we had a court case and there were some Bloomberg lawyers involved in this. And they basically said, look, if a school board has security in the school and you've got teachers and others armed, you have to have over 700 hours of training, which is absurd. That's not what the law actually says. But we got a bad Supreme Court ruling, so we need a bill that is going to reverse that and give power back to the school boards and reduce that training or do something so that teachers and school personnel can actually be armed and start up their security procedures again, because right now we basically have schools that are wide open. You know, in fact, prior to the Supreme Court decision, this terrible decision, I think there were schools in 70 counties that had armed personnel in them. So right now those are 70 counties that are no longer have schools that are protected by armed personnel, unless it's a resource officer, which we've seen time and time again, one person, you know, very likely to have an impact on the situation. So I think the legislature knows they've got to do something or they're going to be left holding the bag should a tragedy occur. The big debate now between House and Senate members is just what does it look like? You know, previous law left the entire thing up to the school board to decide. I don't think that's what's going to come out. I think if they pass anything, they're going to be looking for some additional requirements. So it really gets into just how much are they going to require, Dean? And then the real question is, if they go too far, how many teachers would even take advantage of it if it, you know, puts on so much burden for them to even be able to do it? So the legislature has some work to do on this one to make it right. but. Uh, Right now, the clock is ticking. I think it's a very vulnerable situation we find ourselves in now, and they need to fix it. Yeah, I think we had talked about this before, and if they have to do the 700 hours, I think the way that that works out, given how much training that a teacher ordinarily does throughout the year, it would take them about 20 years to get through 700 hours 
And so essentially it just, it kills having teachers or others armed in school. And that, of course, was the whole point. That's what the Bloomberg lawyers wanted. They wanted to shut this down, and they essentially did it. So we have to address it one way or another, and uh, uh, we're obviously hoping that uh, this bill can do it and that they can arrive at something that uh, is going to pass. Yeah, absolutely. It just needs to get done. That's the bottom line. That brings us to one of the constitutional carry bills, HB 227. There's been quite a bit of activity on this. Four hearings, by my count, the last one very recently, October 14. And I think at the last hearing they had, there were something like 100 opponents. Yeah, the uh, the Bloomberg's moms turned out in their red shirts, you know, and uh, they gave all the typical testimony that we've heard about every gun bill for the last 20 years, you know, blood in the streets, okay, corral, wild west, and all that nonsense. Good questions by committee members. Of course, you know, BFA testified in favor of the bill. So did the National Rifle Association. We've been working diligently with members of the House Government Oversight Committee to count votes, to, to try to decide what's it going to take to get it pushed through. I think we've said since the beginning of this session, Dean, that we think the, you know, the door's open to get something done and, and something substantial. So I have high hopes for House Bill 227. And, you know, hopefully something will happen here within the next month or two. But I, I really do feel like this is our best shot to get it done. And then there's a, a related bill. I'm just going to skip down the list a little bit. There is SB 215, which is a constitutional carry bill sponsored by Terry Johnson. Now, that one's had two hearings. It's not been around as much as HB 227. The last hearing was on October 5th. So what, what do we uh, have to say about that? As, you know, as opposed to 227. These are very different bills. They are. They're, they take a different approach. They're both good bills, but they, they definitely take a different approach. Senator Johnson's bill is not currently scheduled for a third hearing. I literally just communicated with his office today, uh, and they've made the request to the committee chairman, Senator Frank Hoagland, to schedule it for hearing again. So I know, similar to the House, that they're, they're working on it right now, and we're doing the same exercise in the Senate. And I think we've communicated to both chambers that uh, we'd like either bill, you know, just move with, they just need to move something and it needs to be done long before lame duck, which is where we normally get shoved over to. And constitutional carry, I think it, it gets misunderstood by a lot of people, especially listening to some of the opponent testimony where, you know, they, they say that all this stuff about the wild west and so on, but their thought throughout and, and the one thing that unifies all of the opponent testimony is if we have constitutional carry, people who are not allowed to carry guns, bad guys, criminals, are going to be carrying guns. I'm not sure where they get that because constitutional carry really is about just making the option to have a license. And right now you have to have a license to carry concealed. You do not have to have a license to carry openly. So it's really about whether the license is optional or not, that's what constitutional carry does. It does not give criminals the right to carry guns. No, and I have to be honest with you. Uh, you know, I, I think I watched about the first 25 Bloomberg moms go up there and read their script. It all reads the same. I think they know these bills don't do that. I think they're just following the typical script, which is to try to scare people into thinking that, uh, you know, again, Okay, corral, shoot, people shooting each other over parking spaces and all of that nonsense. So then uh, we've got a knife preemption bill, HB 243. 
Now, this one has had three hearings. There's also a companion bill in the Senate, which we can uh, talk about, because that actually passed the Senate. This was something that passed this week. Knife preemption, this is similar to firearms preemption. Essentially, if you understand preemption in Ohio, for firearms, the way that works is generally you have home rule, so cities pass their own laws, uh, govern themselves. That's generally a good thing. But with firearms, in order to prevent there being all different kinds of firearm rules all over the state and people getting in trouble, you want one set of laws. So with knife preemption, basically it's just adding the word knife, essentially, to the preemption language. And it means that cities can't come up with their own rules on knives uh, because essentially they're arms. People think of arms as in keep and bear arms, that that's just guns. Well, no, knives are arms as well. Yes. Yes. And, and I, I think there's a good chance that, uh, that the knife preemption bill makes it to the governor's desk. Obviously, the Senate version has already passed one chamber. But I think, it, you know, the parallels are there, as you said, to firearm preemption. And the idea that you can continue to have just a, a crazy quilt of various rules and regulations is just unworkable. All right, uh, that brings us to the FIND Act, HB 297, the Firearms Industry Non-Discrimination Act. Now, we've not talked a lot about this, but this is another Scott Wiggum bill. Why don't you describe that bill and what that's really about? This is more about the industry, right? This is more about sellers of firearms. Right. You know, I think to start off this discussion, Dean, you know, our listeners need to realize that the anti-gun folks, you know, they want to take us out any way they can, death by a thousand cuts, right? And so one of the ways that they have increasingly been trying to deny you your right to keep and bear arms is by destroying the gun industry. And one way in which they're doing that is by persuading some of these more woke companies and these woke lending institutions to not do business with firearms companies just simply because they're firearms companies. And this is one of those bills that sort of goes against the grain of your typical conservative thought, right? It's, it's long been the belief that, hey, you, you ought to be able to do business with whoever you want to do business with, and you would refute, you'd be able to refuse the right uh, to serve anybody that you don't want to. But the law does set aside certain discriminations that you're not allowed to do, right? You can't refuse to serve somebody in a restaurant because of their race or because of their gender and et cetera, et cetera. And this bill would seek to provide the same protections to the firearms industry. So, you know, our listeners might be saying, well, geez, why, why does that, why is that necessary? And I'm not sure I like the way that sounds. Well, here's why it's necessary. There are only a handful of really big banks when you get down to it. And so these firearms companies, ammunition companies, component manufacturers, they've only got a handful of lending institutions to go to for their lines of credit. And so when these banks gang up on them because they're being influenced by the Bloombergs of the world not to do business with the firearms industry, they're essentially trying to destroy the industry itself. And this movement has spread beyond just the banks, right? So you've got companies like salesforce.com, which you know is an online company, a digital company that helps manage uh, sales. They won't do business with the firearms industry. We've heard about uh, hotels that don't want to do business with the firearms industry, right? And so where does that stop? And so, you know, the, the firearms industry is the main 
proponent of the FIND Act. And I think we've got to admit, sometimes, you know, straight conservative dogma is not the only way you would evaluate a bill like this. If if the anti-gun folks are going to apply this kind of weapon against us, you know, it, we sit in our ivory tower of allowing businesses to make this decision for themselves. And the next thing you know, there's not a single major bank in the country that'll lend money to a, a firearms manufacturer. Well, the next thing you know, you know, getting a firearm, an affordable firearm becomes much more difficult. So I think in this case, this is a bill that, that, uh, that, that needs to pass. And it's not just lenders. I mean, we've seen this happen with uh, credit card processing as well. I mean, every business, you've got to process credit cards. We've had this problem. We have had credit card processors basically shut us down because we're a firearms organization. And right. there are a lot of those out there, but you've, you've got to work with somebody. If you don't take credit cards, you don't do business. That's and right. this was something that I believe came from the Obama administration where they were, this was a strategy to go after certain you know, sins, right? Uh, guns and drugs and, and other things. And they were basically just trying to shut a lot of businesses down. So we have to fight against that any way we can. That's right. We have to. And, and it really spreads even beyond financial transactions. When you think about the climate in this country, Facebook, what can you say about firearms on Facebook? What can you say about firearms on Twitter? You know, so social media is applying some of the some similar discriminations against firearms. And so, you know, in a perfect conservative world, we might be saying that, uh, you know, we don't want to dabble in that. But the truth is the bad guys are trying to destroy the industry. And by doing that, dry up your ability to get a firearm. So I, I don't think we can sit on the sideline on this. So next up, we have uh, another couple of companion bills here on limiting emergency powers. Now, we've talked a lot on this podcast about that. There's one in the House, HB 325. There's one in the Senate, SB 185. The one in the Senate just passed. And so it's it's made its way through the Senate. It has to make its way through the House. And this one is about limiting government power so that during declared emergencies, you can't infringe on Second Amendment rights. And it's really, it's about firearms, but it's also about sportsman activity. So this is about hunting, trapping, fishing, and things like that as well. This is These are very expansive bills. Yeah, in fact, Dean, what we've learned over the last 25 years is that anytime there's any kind of disaster emergency, you know, flood, hurricane, forest fire, tornado, you whatever you think of past examples or the current situation with a national emergency with the COVID situation, we get to see how government responds. And we, you know, we saw some states take some really scary steps toward Michigan to our north. They shut down all gun stores. You know, Washington state shut down their spring turkey season and some of their fishing, for God's sake, right? California, I mean, this isn't gun related, but California shut down churches. And the reason I think it's relevant to talk about churches and guns at the same time is, you know, the First Amendment protects your right to practice your religion. And the Second Amendment, of course, your right to keep and bear arms. And so these are bedrock constitutional rights that government just set aside as part of their response to COVID. And, and so it's really important at a time like this that the state of Ohio define Ohio as a place that that, that, that kind of stuff is not going to happen. So whether it's gun stores, gun ranges, uh, gun training, 
concealed handgun permit processing, or as you mentioned, hunting and fishing related businesses, an emergency cannot be used as a justification for shutting down Second Amendment related practices. And these bills have an awful lot of support when we launched these. Uh, and, and we did, you know, most of the, the groundwork on this. And we're working, by the way, with the NRA and the National Shooting Sports Foundation. We made these as broad as possible. We went out and got over 60 sponsors and co-sponsors in both the Senate and the House. Broad support. We certainly expect this to pass. Yes. In fact, you know, you mentioned it passed the Senate already, Dean. Senate Bill 185 passed with 23 yes votes and only seven no votes. So that's a very strong uh, margin to come out of the Senate. I, I expect the House will deal with this bill. As you said, it's got a lot of support. This, according to the National Shooting Sports Foundation, this would be the strongest Second Amendment emergency powers bill in the entire nation. And uh, I'm, I'm, for one, proud of that idea. If we're going to do something, let's do it right. Now, recently, we had a brand new bill introduced. Uh, not a lot to say about this right now, HB 455. This just was introduced. In fact, I think this was on, what, Tuesday? We're recording this on a Friday. It was on Tuesday of this week that this was introduced, and it's to avoid charges for carrying concealed in public places. So, you know, if you go into a place they don't want you to carry there for one reason or another, maybe you don't see the sign, whatever you go in and you're carrying, the, the idea of this is that the uh, property owner can ask you to leave, but there isn't going to be a charge involved or fine. Yeah. Right. It makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? I mean, you got your one little sign, who knows, you know, you're, you're going into a store with your hands full of packages or you're distracted one way or another, you don't see their sign, you know, you're not committing any any other violation of law that would make you a, a you know a criminal. It, it'd be awful nice if if we didn't automatically criminalize somebody for a simple mistake like this. So this bill makes a lot of sense. As you say, it's brand new, so we'll have to see how it's received in the house. But I start I certainly think it's a good idea. Well I remember for a long time at Costco you know, they have these big garage doors, like glass uh, garage doors, and they would have the sign on the garage door, but then they open the garage doors to allow people to come in, right? right. So, the, so the sign is actually about 10 feet in the air, and unless you're looking all over to find that sign, there's no way you're going to see it. Now, I think they, they post in a different way now, but, you know, for a few years, that was the way they posted. There was no way that that, that was conspicuous, to anyone going in, so it would be ridiculous to charge somebody for be, for being there, carrying concealed, even though they had a sign, because the sign has to be clear and it has to be conspicuous. Right, right. So this, I just think this is reasonable. You know, l let's not catch people up who are otherwise law-abiding just for a simple oversight. So, I, you know, I hope House Bill 455 gets a good shot and Representative Stoltzfus is able to make his case. We certainly support the bill. So now, Rob, we've been clear since the beginning of the session that our two big priorities here, I mean, we support all of these 12 bills, but our two big priorities are constitutional carry and the emergency bill, the emergency powers bill. And while we certainly want to see the armed school personnel addressed and all of these others, we, we definitely are pushing hardest for constitutional carry. And for the emergency bill, we, we just think that this solves the widest array of problems 
for gun owners in Ohio, if we can get those passed, we can solve a lot of problems all at once. Well, there's no doubt, especially constitutional carry, right? I mean, that's the brass ring. That's that's the one that spells out in plain English, hey, that stuff we say in our Constitution, we really mean it. And and I think it just needs to be done. Whenever you have, what did you say, 12 bills, you know, of, of various types that are pro-gun, you can certainly support them all. But if you don't really concentrate your fire on the two or three priorities that you really want to get done, it can be hard to get through this process. And so for Buckeye Firearms Association, constitutional carry is absolutely our top priority. And this emergency powers bill is our second priority. I think the times dictate why it's necessary. So while we'll continue to advocate for all these bills, you know, these two topics will be the ones that will get the majority of our time until they're done. And for those of you listening, if you've been seeing any stories about this emergency bill, I've been seeing this over and over again. The way it's reported is that this is all about riots or, or mobs. And that, that is a vast misunderstanding of this bill. It is not about just riots or mobs. This is about declared emergencies. The, the newspapers, all the reporters are getting this wrong. I know why they're getting it wrong, because there's a section at the beginning of the bill that talks about mobs and riots, but they're not looking further into the bill. This is really a loophole to preemption, because preemption does not allow cities or other entities to regulate firearms, components, or ammunition, but you declare an emergency and suddenly they can do it. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's a really good point, Dean. You know, I think this idea that in a declared emergency that your Second Amendment rights are just suddenly pushed aside ought to really scare us. And some of the Democrats who voted against this bill, you know, they've raised the question, well, gosh, you know, nothing bad happened here. So, nothing bad happened. Why do you need to pass a bill? And the idea here is this. If we wait until we have the wrong type of legislature to try to fix a loophole like this, you know, they're not going to pass the bill at that point. So they know they're being disingenuous by raising that argument. And, and frankly, let's face it, when is it the most likely that you would need your firearms rights? It's during the time of emergency. And so that point you raise about mobs and riots, you, you know, the bill covers every conceivable type of emergency. So it covers all the weather events we talked about. It covers mobs and riots and insurrections. It covers public health emergencies like we're dealing with now. The bill is simply meant to be all-encompassing. If government declares an emergency, then that does not mean that you lose your Second Amendment rights as part of the bargain. That's really all the bill does. It's really simple. You know, uh, a lot of people have called the Second Amendment the doomsday amendment, because what it's really about is when when things go wrong, you need to have access to firearms. You need to have access to arms. So a lot of people in the general public criticize the Second Amendment that, well, you know, are you really going to need guns? Well, you're going to need them in an emergency. You're going to need them when things go wrong. So this bill, I think, is is uh, it's a little hard to, to explain compared to constitutional carry, but when we're talking about these um, emergency provisions, it gives sweeping power to government that people really aren't taking into consideration, and you're not going to think about it until it's too late. That's right. And you know, here's something we haven't talked about much about the bill. This bill has some serious teeth. 
if a local government, your township, your county, your city, enacts any type of gun restriction under the guise of an emergency, not only is that against state law, but it gives you, the aggrieved party, the ability to bring a, a civil action, in other words, sue your city. And if the, if the finding goes your way, then not only will you get awarded damages, but the city will also have to pay your legal fees. And Dean, you wrote recently about a similar issue in which I think the city of Cincinnati had to shell out some money for breaking the law. And so this sets up a similar situation. If cities and towns decide they're going to snatch our Second Amendment rights during an emergency, it could hit them in the pocketbook uh, very hard. Yeah, that's another topic. We don't have time to, to uh, discuss that in this podcast, but uh, Cincinnati, that was one of the cities we sued, and they are currently paying our foundation over $200,000 in legal fees, and that's what can happen. Uh, that, that shows you how expensive these lawsuits can get, and actually that is not particularly expensive, all things considered, lawsuits can get a lot more costly than that. That's and right. so what what these bills do is that um, when you sue, if you win, the opposing team has to pay you back, so you get all your legal fees back. So uh, that that's absolutely important. Without that, people just could never sue, and you would have no mechanism to push back against cities when they decide that they're going to regulate firearms. That's right. So that's, a, that's why I say, you know, that's, this bill has some real teeth. And, uh, and that's why, again, it's, it's our second priority for the legislative session, but it's a very important bill to see get, uh, get accomplished. Well, Rob, thanks for the summary. I'm sure we'll be talking a lot more about many of these bills as time goes on. Uh, we are pushing to get constitutional carry and the emergency bill passed before the end of this year, actually, not just before the end of the session. We'd like to see it before the election year. Next year really ramps up. So uh, keep up the good work. We're, we've been at the state house pretty much every day. I think you need to get a room down there. You've been down there so much. <laughs> and, and we are really, really working hard on a daily basis to push these bills. It's a very difficult environment. But, uh, Rob, you're doing a great job, and uh, we're going to keep fighting until we get these things passed. Well, we appreciate the support we get from, you know, when you send out those alerts and, you know, people send their emails, they make their phone calls, they really make a difference. And so I just ask everyone listening, when you see one of these alerts, you know, hit them, hit them from every side, send the email, send the text message, make the phone call, and then tell everybody in your house or your neighborhood to do the same thing. That type of approach really makes our job a lot easier. Okay, Rob. Again, thanks, and we'll talk to you again soon. All right, sounds great. Thanks, Dean. That's all for this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. If you enjoyed the podcast, I urge you to subscribe. And please subscribe to the Buckeye Firearms Association newsletter at BuckeyeFirearms.org. If you'd like to become a member and support the work of BFA, go to joinbfa.org. Use the discount code PODCAST to get $10 off your membership. That's joinbfa.org. We'll see you next time on Keep and Bear Radio.